Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this service, we hope to see you this Sunday at either 8.45 a.m. for our praise and worship service or 11 a.m. for our traditional service. Now, here's this week's message. I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we continue our church-wide campaign called We'll Do For One What You Wish You Could Do For Everyone. Last week, we laid the theological foundation for doing good works, and we saw how the Bible urges us to do good things. And remember, we don't do good things to earn our salvation. We do things, and we do these good things because of our salvation, because of the grace of God. And over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about all the good we plan on doing, specifically give, serve, and love. Now, growing up, my friend David and I used to pass the time as kids by thinking about and dreaming what we would do if we won the lottery and became rich. Now, you have to understand, at this time, my mom was a single mom, and there was three children living in our house. We had a 900-square-foot house, and we never thought we were poor, but it was a lot of people in a smaller house, and all you have to do is get on the bus and drive around to other neighborhoods to realize you didn't have the biggest house in the area. So we never thought we were poor. We just knew we weren't rich. And so David and I, we never dreamed we could earn enough money to be rich. We never thought anybody in our family would ever pass us anything down to make us rich. So we just dreamed, like, what would we buy? What would we do if we ever won the lottery? And, and it's funny because we always promised each other, kind of like a just in case, we always promised that if the other person won the lottery, they would buy the other person a house near them, right? Like they would take care of them forever. I guess we were kind of like, Placing our bets just in case. I mean, neither of us actually pay the lottery, right? We're kids. But this was the ideas we came up with. You see, being rich was a dream. It was never reality for me. I never thought it could happen. Well, have you all ever played the game, what would happen if I won the lottery? What would I do with all the money? I'm not saying you play it, right? I'm not asking you if you play it. But have you ever thought about it? Yeah, well, for us, you know, we didn't really know what a million dollars were. We didn't know how big the jackpot was. Basically, we were playing, if I had all the money, unlimited money, what would I do with it? Well, then I started working, and money became real, and realized that nobody has unlimited money ever, do they? That's not a thing. Now, when I was 15, I started working at Arby's. Anybody ever worked at Arby's? Just me at this church. Nobody else has ever learned about the secret to the curly fries other than me, huh? Okay, so I started working at 15, and I was making $5.15 an hour, an hour. And after every paycheck, I just had a car payment. After every paycheck, I would have a bunch of money left over, and I would walk around my neighborhood with like 100 bucks in my pocket, and I thought I could buy anyone's house, any car. I mean, I thought I was loaded. Like, I just walked to my friends and be like, look, look at all that cash. I thought I was doing something. Well, until I saw my manager's pay. Now, he told me about this. We were talking about money or something. I don't remember how, but he started punching in the calculator what he made as a manager. And I remember him turning it around to me, and it was like $20,000. And I thought, whew, he is loaded. I remember going home telling my mom 
how lucrative the fast food, ministry, fast food management industry was. I just said, Mom, can you believe how much money they make? And then I remember the first time I actually made $20,000 a year. You know, I never felt rich that year. And what I learned, and probably you already know, is being rich is a moving target. Once you get what you thought would be enough, it turns out, you may not know this, I'm just telling you what I found out, you may not know, but once you get what you thought would be enough, did you know you can then want something else? Did y'all know that? You can actually want a bigger house or a more expensive car. Like You can actually find a way to spend everything you have. And do you know studies show that nobody really ever feels rich? Gallup did a poll asking people, what is rich? Because, I mean, if you were to think about it, how would you define it? Here's the question they asked people. They said, how much money per year would it take you need, excuse me, how much money per year would you need to make in order to consider yourself rich? It was an open-ended question. Listen to the responses. 18% said they would need to make less than $60,000 a year to consider themselves rich. 12% said they would need to make between sixty dollars and $99,000 a year to be rich. 12, excuse me, 23% said they would need to make between $100,000 and $150,000 a year to be considered rich. 18% said no, it's $150,000 to $299,000 a year. Then they would be rich. 14% somewhere said somewhere between $300,000 and $999,000 a year. Then they would be rich. 11% said they need over a million dollars a year. And 4% said more than a million dollars per year. See, those numbers are all over the place. And when you ask someone what it takes to be rich, people come up with different answers. And here's what this study found. They say roughly, people roughly thought that if they doubled their income, then they would be rich. If I just double what I make now, then I'll finally have enough. But as you know, like we talked about, once you get to that number, well, it changes. You see, being rich always changes. And you may not feel rich this morning. You may say, well, don't worry about that. I definitely don't feel rich. I'm definitely not rich. But if you were to be honest... How many people all over the world would look at your house, look at your car or cars, look at all that you have and the fact that maybe some of us aren't working, we had enough in the bank to where we could quit working to then carry us out for many years. How many do you think would actually look at you and say, wow, they're rich? See, although most people will never feel it as we talked about, I have good news for you. You're probably rich. Chances are, no matter where you are in the economical scale here in our country, chances are you are rich to the vast majority of the world. And now before we go any further, I'm aware that some of you may be facing some tough financial situations. You may be having a hard time paying medical bills, or you may be facing unemployment. You may be a single parent. Listen, we're not insensitive to any of that. But the cold, hard fact, and what we kind of got to grab hold of this morning is that you live in the richest country and the richest time the world has ever seen. And just by living here, you have opportunities that people 
would just love to have. You see, the median household income in the world is less than $10,000 per year. The median household income, not salary, combined income is $10,000 per year. Close to 3 billion people on earth live on $2 per day. How many of our coffees cost more than that every morning? 1.2 billion live on less than $1.25 a day. A net worth of $4,210. A net worth of $4,210 makes you richer than 50% of the world's population. A net worth of 93000 Now, this is your retirement, all of that kind of stuff. A net worth of $93,170 makes you richer than 90% of the people on the planet. If you make more than $50,000 per year, you are on the top 1% earners on this planet. Some of us are in the 1% club, huh? If you make... a year or above, you are in the top 4% wage earners in the world. To this, Andy Stanley says, he says, congratulations, you were in the 4% club. You were rich. He said, yet, I'm guessing this startling realization didn't cause you to leave the comfort of your couch and dance around the room. He said, but you should have. On the world scale, you should have no problems at all other than a handful of rich people problems. Problems that the majority of folks on this planet would love to have. Bad cell phone coverage, that's a rich people problem. Can't decide where to go on vacation, rich people problem. Computer crash, slow internet, car trouble, flight delays, Amazon doesn't have your size, all rich people problems. He says, next time there's a watering ban in your neighborhood, just remember that most, many people, mostly women, carry jugs on their head for hundreds of yards just so they can have water for cooking and drinking. They can't imagine a place where there's so much extra water that house after house just sprays it all over the ground. See, you and I, we can never forget that God has created the world and God loves the world. Not just America. And by the world's standards, many of us are filthy rich. You see, growing up, I dreamed about being rich. And it wasn't until I went to Haiti that I realized I have been rich my entire life. And I never knew it. Even in a small house with a single mom, with all of us kids, we were loaded compared to them. Andy Stanley says, the biggest challenge facing rich people is they've lost their ability to recognize that they're rich. So I don't talk about this to make you feel bad or to put you on a guilt trip. Guilt is not a good motivator. It doesn't lead to change. Guilt just leads to all sorts of healthy, unhealthy emotions. But gratitude... Being thankful, well, we can do amazing things with that. You see, there's nothing wrong with being rich. It may be awkward to admit it. I mean, come on, how many of us want to deep down be like openly admit we're rich? It feels awkward, it feels arrogant, it feels weird, but we are. And if you would just pretend with me for a minute that you're rich, 
just over the next couple of minutes, just say, okay, Brian, I get it. To the world's standards, I may look rich. If you can do that with me, then you will get the impact of what the Apostle Paul says in our verse this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you have your ride with you, go ahead and pull it out. If not, it'll be on the screen behind you. He says this. He said, command those who are all right, see, we don't, we don't even want to say the word. I understand. It's okay. Let's just say it. Command those who are rich. There we go. In this present world, not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You see, chances are, if I didn't just have that discussion with you, when I said command those who are rich, we'd be like, that ain't me. That's the other guy. That's the other family. But if we would just own that perhaps, just perhaps, we are rich. And this is for us. This is for you and I. Paul says, command those who are rich. But notice he doesn't say command those who feel rich. But command those who are. And by the global scale, we are rich. So command them. He says the rich in this present world. Stop real quick because there's a contrast. He's saying in this present world, you are rich. But just because the here and now you have money doesn't mean that it translates to being rich in eternity because he's going to talk about that in a minute. So you might have a lot now, but it doesn't mean you're going to have a lot later. He says, don't be arrogant, which means, you know, thinking you're more important than you are. I don't know if you've ever met anybody or seen anybody on the news who has a lot of money who seems kind of arrogant, you know, like they own everything or should control everything, right? Yet money can, can cause arrogancy. So he says, don't be arrogant, which means thinking you're more important. He says, don't make wealth the hope of your life. Why? Because it's uncertain. 2008 taught us all that wealth is uncertain, didn't it? Taught all of us that, hey, you know what? It can come and it can go. He says, instead of trusting riches, instead of putting our hope in riches, we put our anticipation, our confident anticipation in God. Because he is the one that riches, richly provides. You and I, were simply managers. We, we aren't arrogant because God's the giver. So we don't boast about what we've done. We understand that God has given it to us. And look at what he says at the end. He says he's provided us everything for our what? Enjoyment. You know it's okay to enjoy what God's given you? It's okay to take pleasure in the things he gives you as, as gifts? This doesn't mean we selfishly enjoy them, like we take everything we have and we spend it, plus all of the credit that's available to us, we spend that as well. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying, but God has given us these things to enjoy, to take pleasure in. And then Paul lays out how we can do that. He says this, he said, command them to do good, which we talked all about last week. To be rich in good deeds, he's, he's qualifying everything. He's going deeper so we don't get lost on what, he, what exactly he's saying. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to play on words there, and to be generous and willing to share. So generosity and sharing were hallmarks of the early church, and it should be for today's churches. And he says, in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So remember at the beginning, he said, if you're rich in this present age, meaning you can't take it with you, he's saying here, by sharing and by being generous, we will store up treasures for ourselves in another place. 
and the other age in eternity. So by us being generous and willing to share, we're giving away here, but by us giving here, we're storing up for ourselves there. And at the end, he says, by doing this, we can take hold of life that is truly life. It's as if Paul is saying, if you're not generous and you don't share, you're missing out on what life really is. It's as if generosity and sharing by those acts that you and I do, we unlock and we discover what true life really looks like. Because we never, man, we never forget we serve a God who gives. And so we, we give and we share. So if you, you're rich, it's not a bad thing. Paul doesn't say it's a bad thing. He says, if you're rich, don't put your hope in money, but put your hope in God. And then do good by sharing and being generous. Come on, that, that wasn't so bad after all, was it? That's pretty easy. That's, the part is just remembering that we, you and I, are these people he's talking to. Not somebody else. Us. Being rich isn't a bad thing. It's just that you have an opportunity to share with others. And I know that most of you already get this. If you didn't know or you're new to our church, you are surrounded by some of the most generous people on this planet. Our church gets being generous. And so I figured as a church, we could come together and generously give. Come together with our gifts and generously give to an organization that is doing great things right here in our community. In fact, I believe that God has led us to partner with them. You see, remember we talked about this idea of do for one, and one of the things, projects we want to do is do for maybe one family or, or one person, extraordinary. But God led us a different way. You see, my last church was heavily involved in foster care. I pastored, if you didn't know, for three and a half years out in the Appalachian Mountains, and, and there's just some bad situations out there. So our church really took hold of foster care. And so a lot of people in our church were fostering children, and a lot of them adopted foster children. And so we got to see the benefits and see firsthand how children's lives were changed, the situation they come from. I mean, it was an amazing thing, and it took a special place in Jessica and I's heart when we started talking about it. Well, then we moved here, and we've talked about it a little bit more, and a couple weeks back, we went to uh, an orientation here in uh, Horry County for fostering children here. So we needed to learn what it looked like and, and how we could be a part of it. And I'll be honest with you, when they started talking about all the requirements and all the things you had to go through, I mean, it was hard. If you haven't caught on by now, I have an authority issue. Have we all already caught that? Yeah. And so when I'm there and they're telling me the state's going to tell me what kind of smoke detector I need, I went, do what? You're going to tell? Um. And so I'm struggling through that, not just that, some other things. But something really stood out. You know, me and Jess, we're, we're praying about it, seeking God, what he wants us to do. But one thing that stood out to me, and this is what I wanted to tell you about, is while we were there and the lady was going through all that foster care is, all that it's involved, the lady said something like this. She said, perhaps you aren't in the season of life to be able to foster children. Because all of us there had very small kids, and she was very honest. She said, if you have small kids in the home, you need to understand what this is going to do, what's going to happen, and how it's going to affect your home. She was very honest. I was thankful for it. She said, so maybe you're not in the season of life to do this. She said, but is there another way you can help? And you know what my first thought was? Sure is. I serve a pretty generous church, and I want to tell them what's going on and see how we can help. 
Do you know how awesome that is as a pastor? The first thing popping in your mind is that the church can do something about it. True story. And so here we are. See, the great thing for us is we don't have to invent the wheel when it comes to taking care of foster children and things like that. Fostering Hope, the organization we're partnering with, is already doing amazing things for them. And so we've invited Tabby here to talk about it. She is the director and the, the, um, uh, the founder of Fostering Hope. And so I'm going to ask her to come up this morning, and we're going to talk a little bit to let you know what you will be giving your money to if you choose to give to this special offering. Will you clap for her as she comes up? Makes it a little less awkward. So, yeah, first, thank you for being with you. And as I said, these are all of your toys. This is the place that's going. They're coming in to pick them up right afterwards. And so, Tabby, first, thank you for being here. And can you just tell us your story and a little bit about fostering hope? Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me here this morning. And for this, this is absolutely amazing and wonderful. Um, just to kind of give you an idea of how this all got started, um, back in 2002, my husband and I decided to adopt, and we ended up adopting two little boys who were four and a half years old, some little twins, and when they showed up at our house the first time, and they were unloading the truck that they, DSS had brought them in, the, everything they had was in trash bags, and most of the things that were in those trash bags are things that most of us in here would have gotten rid of immediately, um, but the boys had been bounced around to so many houses in the year. Actually, they were separated because they were so bad that nobody handled the two four-and-a-half-year-olds by themselves um, that they wouldn't even get rid of the trash bags for weeks because they knew that they were going to be moved again, and they knew that that was their life, was just going to be passed on. And right then, my husband and I talked about it. We said, well, and this is where we're going back to this riches thing. I said, well, someday when we have this much money in the bank, someday when he makes partner, someday when I get my Mercedes convertible, then I'll be able to open a place and have a little clothing closet, just part-time somewhere, so that the kids can come in and shop and not really, I mean, just get some items so that they don't have hand-me-down, hand-me-down, hand-me-downs. But it was back in um, 2004, I was just up the road at a church and heard a sermon and in the sermon, I remember distinctly hearing there's somebody in this church that is supposed to be doing God's work and doing my work, but because of financial concerns, you're not doing it. And I said, well, that's not me. I said, I have to, I mean, you know, that's down the line. And two or three times during the sermon, I kept hearing that message. And I went home and thought about it. And that was on well, Sunday, of course, and then on Monday morning, I went into my job, and I went to my computer, started working, and the next thing I knew, I had typed out a res um, resignation letter and turned it in, and then I called my husband, who was new in his job, too, and told him I had just resigned. I don't recommend that. Um, the power of a sermon, <laughs> I tell you what. He was like, you did what? Um, and then the next day, I decided, I called up a good friend of mine, and I said, well, remember we talked about this a few years ago with the boys, and I wanted to do this. I'm ready. And that's how that got started. And we started that. It was July 6th 
I remember 2004, and by December, we had the first child served. Okay, so could you tell us a little bit more about foster care? Because for, for me, when I went to the orientation, you know, there are things I never thought of that go on or what they lack and, and kind of the reason behind this. Could you tell us kind of about what may happen with a child being put in foster care? Sure. Um, my husband and I have fostered over 60 children over the years. And many of the children that when they show up at the house, um, we've had children that have come in literally with just a diaper on um, in a car seat. They were found in a hotel room um, while the parents went out partying with a bag of Cheetos, a 10-month-old. And we've had children that have, we've had calls in the middle of the night in the winter. Um, actually, the caseworker brought a child down to Fostering Hope that all she had that they could find to put on her in the middle of the night in the house was a T-shirt and a pair of underwear, and not her T-shirt. Um, and every single child that comes in you have to remember, I just want you to just think for one second, this is probably the best way to do this, is imagine if somebody walked through those doors right now and walked up to you and said, it is not safe for you to return to your house today. You can't go home to your family, you can't go to your job tomorrow, or work, your school in this, their case, and what you have with you at this exact moment is all you have. You're going to go to a stranger's house tonight you're gonna sleep on a strange pillow. You're gonna to have to deal with all of their customs and all of their rules. By the way, it doesn't matter that you're angry and maybe you've just been through something horrific, but we're expecting you to be signed into school tomorrow and keep on going. Um, doesn't matter how many caseworkers, doctors, psychiatrists, whatever, you still need to keep on moving forward and behave yourself. Well, imagine having to go to school the next day in what you, just were taken with that day, the day before. So we make sure that they have clothes, they have shoes, they have toys, we have school supplies, um, hygiene products, books, anything that you can imagine that a child needs immediately, plus some of those things that are gonna make them comfortable. We have um, quilters who make us homemade quilts. Mm. We have people who bring in stuffed animals for them. We have make sure that, you know, if it's a teenage girl that they've got, you know, a purse or they have some hair things or some, they want to have something that they want. Right. And, you know, we are not going to fix the children's problems. We can't. Um, but as I tell people, we're just a Band-Aid. But sometimes that's that Band-Aid that holds them together. Right. Yeah, because I would... So a child can be taken from their family. Some have been repeatedly taken, so they kind of have a bag that they understand. But some just first time. So when they may be taken from the family would have circumstances, what they have is what they have. What they have is what they have. And so if they just have a t-shirt on and underwear, that's it. They show up at somebody's house in that with nothing. Can you imagine how humiliating that would be? And so where Fostering Hope comes in, the foster family, because you, I mean, you're known in the, the, the area, foster parents know, they call Fostering Hope and they can come to them and the child can bring some dignity back, I feel like, by going shopping to getting their necessities, whether it's underwear, socks, clothes, um, shoes, toys, and I think it's once a quarter they can come. Is that correct? Yes. Once a quarter. And they get to shop with, we have volunteers down there who one-on-one -on -one work with the children so that the child gets to go into a dressing room and pick out clothes they like, make sure they fit. You know, they'll come out. We had one little girl, I remember, she was six years old, and all she wanted was like, I think it was like midnight or one o'clock in the morning. They had called me, the police department called me actually, and all she wanted was a pink dress. Let me tell you what, if we didn't have a pink dress in her size, I was going to Walmart, we were having a pink dress that night. 
And, but when she just turned around and I just remember her just looking at me and she just says, I'm pretty. Mm. Six-year-olds shouldn't have to, you know, that, I'll start crying. Yeah, I understand. Um, but when we see the kids, we have everybody that comes in. We have so many newborn babies coming in, unfortunately, from the drug epidemic here. All the way up through, we get kids that are, you know, 17, 18. And now we're seeing a lot of human trafficking cases coming through as well. Well, so that, that brings up a good point, not, not the trafficking, but the, the different age ranges. So what we learned is that uh, when, when Scott and Gary and I, we went there to talk to them about finding a family to help one, we went there saying, hey, do y'all, can y'all give us some leads on a family that needs help? Well, then we learned about what they did, and we just all felt God saying, no, you're here. This, this is what you're going to partner with. We said, okay. But when we learned that they needed beds, so uh, a child may be taken away from their home, they try to find a family for it to go to, but they have to have bed and requirements for the child to end up sleeping there. That's one of the things that caught my, my wife and I off guard when we said, well, if we were doing an infant or beds, they said, well, you got to have a room set up. So I felt like you needed a bassinet, you needed a crib, you needed a twin bed, a bunk bed. I mean, I needed like 10 more rooms in my house to make this happen. Well, that's where Foster and Hope comes in. That when you accept to get this child, you can say to them, hey, I need a twin bed, they'll get you a twin bed. Or I need a toddler bed. And then when he grows, he or she grows out of it, you can give the toddler bed back. Because if you were fostering 60 kids, think about the different furniture you would need for the age group. And so what I know, what, what really broke our hearts is that they were out of beds. At they a were toddler completely bed. out of toddler beds. And so if a toddler was going to go to a home and now you think, well, can't they buy a bed? Well, think about the strain. If you have 60 kids that are going through your home, the different beds you'd have to purchase and the different life stages. So fostering hope enables people to partner, to foster, and then they come in to help the need so they can actually do it because evidently DSS is pretty strict about smoke detectors nonetheless and a ton of other things. So they help you oh, in yes. that so you can do this for the, the kids, right? So can you tell us um, how many kids do you help a month? On the average month, we're about between 225 to 250. Now we serve... 225 to 250 kids children. come through to get clothes, month. shoes, underwear, toys, things like that. Yes, per month, except for in July and August when we're going back to school, when we'll have between four and 500, just in those couple of weeks right before school starts. And as long as Al's not, Al is our board president. He's not in here He's yet. not here, okay, good, he's coming later. But do not tell him. But as of this morning, we're now up to 913 children for this year for Christmas that we have to provide for. That's what this is about, church. <laughs> we're gonna put a, a little bit of a dent in that. So it was, that's a lot. Last year we did 867 children for Christmas. And that was 100 of those were the flood victims because we also, everybody thinks that when we started, we were just foster children. But we do more than that. We are still only referred by the social services. You can't just like walk in off the street and say, I need things for my child. So what we do, foster care. We do the kinship care, which is basically foster care, but they have a relative placement. Then we also help with a number of the other social agencies with the different shelters here. And we help American Red Cross, so you know that the, you know that you know they're meeting standards, and that yes. there's some somebody watching what goes on. They have to come through a caseworker. It can't just be a private person walking in and saying they need something. All right. And so that's what when we went to Fostering Hope and saw you know the one side that many of you've probably seen is the kind of thrift shop. On the other side, it's like a store, and the feeling is completely different. I got to give it to you guys. It feels really good. I mean, it looks nice, and it looks like they're shopping at a department store, and I just think it's an amazing thing. So you service a lot. Now, can you tell the, everybody here, 
If they were to give today, if the Lord let it put on their heart for them to give, what would their money be going to? Well, we make sure that all the children, if you think about how many children a month, if we don't have donated sneakers or donated underwear and those types of things, we always are providing those things to the children. That's one of the first things is making sure that those necessities are met. We also, right now, we have purchased, everybody knows, right down the street here, we, had, we bought the old Dixie Furniture Building. Um, I should say, Bank of, I mean, the Conway National Bank bought it, mm-hmm. and we're paying them back. Um, but we are trying to have that building paid off and so that we can do other ministry right. through there. And so that's the big thing about paying off building. I know because churches, we want to build, and we forget that they need money to pay the mortgage off trying to do that. And if they were to pay it off, they would have more money than released for the children. <laughs> We have this, other programs that we want to get started as well. Because this is impressive. There is only one paid employee at Fostering Hope. Just the director, just her. Everybody else you see there are all volunteers. So what I think is amazing about this organization is it's not staff heavy. It is giving away heavy. That just one person, which is you, which I think you're doing a commendable job. But Okay, so what else? What else are you giving to? What else would they be giving to? Beds? Well, we also, well, beds. Yeah. If we need them, we also, if we have a child that comes in that needs a specialty item, we had a child that needed a special feeding. It was a handicapped child that needed a special feeding seat. And the one that was recommended, then that was not one that Medicaid would pay for. But the one that the doctor wanted was this other one. It was almost $1,000. Foster parent doesn't know how long they're going to have the child. But we knew that the feeding chair would follow the child. So we made sure that happened. We've paid for camps for kids. We paid for music lessons. I actually, believe it or not, for Christmas, I have like, I think, eight or nine kids that are asking for musical instruments, which I think is amazing. Hmm. We also know that the, they are predicting that, what, that we're going to double in size and population in this county over the next 20 years. That's scary to me. I think it's awesome. That's a great it's opportunity awesome. to reach people with the gospel, but I just get excited about something. Well, that's like that. exciting to you, yeah. but it scares me. <laughs> but that means that instead of serving 200 children a month, we may be looking at 400 children a month. And that's now, instead of 200 pairs of sneakers, that's 400 pairs of sneakers. So that's where we're looking at, is we're trying to figure out the future, where we're going to go. That's right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us this morning. Thank you. Yes. And here in a minute, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Clap for her. I think she did a great job, please. And so James 1, 27 tells us this. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans, which is what this is, and widows, and their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See, perhaps you aren't in the position to be able to foster or adopt. I mean, maybe that's not your life season or whatever you got going. I, I understand that. But perhaps you could help in other ways, and that's what this is about. All of us as a church collectively trying to do one thing for one person, but then when we add that up, do you realize what we could do? And so maybe you're in the position where you could buy one bed or maybe one jacket or maybe one pack of socks or one pack of underwear. Listen, that is... Thank you. Some of you may be able to buy 10 beds or 10 jackets. What we're asking is if all of us could think, well, those numbers are overwhelming, but if we could do for one, what we wish we could do for all of them, collectively at a church, we can do some pretty big things. And so I ask you, we're going to take up the offering of those who are coming up to take up the tithes and uh, the second offering I ask to come up now.
And we're going to just pass the plate again. And again, this isn't to make you feel bad. This isn't to guilt you. We just thought through this whole series that we wanted to partner with local things. And this is right here on Elm Street nonetheless. And so we want to partner with them to show the love of God in simple and practical ways. And so before we take it up, let me go ahead and pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for being a God that is generous and a God that gives. Father, we thank you for the generosity of our people and the numbers and the things that you're putting on their heart to give towards today. We just thank you in advance. Lord, we pray a special blessing upon this offering, Lord, upon these toys that were collected and closed. And God, we pray that these can bring joy and hope, just a glimmer of joy and hope in just tough situations. And Lord, our prayer is that that glimmer of hope and that glimmer of joy will point them to you. That they will realize that there is somebody who loves them, these children. There is somebody who cares and there is somebody who is there. We pray that our church doesn't get the glory for this, Lord, but we pray that you get all of the glory. Father, we just ask that you bless this and follow these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.